You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The goals piece of it has definitely come into focus. When we were in more quarantine mode, people ended up spending more than they expected during that time, just maybe refitting a home office, getting exercise equipment at home, whatever it was. But then as we're transitioning more into going back to the office or doing more of our regular activities, people are feeling maybe clearer on how they want the stage to look different than it was pre-pandemic. The Her Money Podcast is supported by Edelman Financial Engines. Edelman knows that wealth isn't all about money. It's about everything money enables you to do. So how do you build wealth? Join me and award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien for a new show, Everyday Wealth, presented by Edelman Financial Engines. Visit everydaywealth.com slash hermoney to learn more. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. I hope you're feeling great about how 2022 is progressing. If you made any New Year's resolutions, now is the time to take a fresh look at your list to make sure you can go into the next 11 months with confidence. And that confidence is actually what we're going to talk about today on a broader scale. Specifically, we're going to talk about what it means to be financially confident. And of course, with that confidence comes responsibility. We want to be good stewards of our money. We want to ensure that we have the ability to give back to those less fortunate. We want to become more financially conscious as we're growing that confidence. So today we're going to ask, how can we be the kind of saver or investor or philanthropist or budgeter that we've always wanted to be? Ashley Feinstein-Gersley is here with us. She's been on the show before, but she's here with us today to give us some answers because she's got a new book out. It's called Financial Adulting, and it's a guide that breaks down everything you need to know to become your best financial self. It covers budgeting and consumer activism to investing and taxes. Ashley's also a money coach. She's author of the 30-Day Money Cleanse and the founder of the Fiscal Femme, a money platform on a mission to end inequality through financial well-being. Ashley, so nice to see you. So great to see you. Thank you for having me back. Oh, of course. I know you've been up to quite a lot since we last talked to you on Her Money. That was back in 2019. For those of you who want to look it up, it was episode 171, all about the master cleanse for your money. Since then, you've had, as you put it, a pandemic baby. I got to say, for somebody who's dealing with two little kids, you're looking pretty good. Thank you. It's very kind. (laughs) What inspired you to write this latest book? Yes. So my first book, The 30-Day Money Cleanse, was all about budgeting and money mindset, and it was all from my personal perspective. And I was really excited to write a book that answered a lot of the other questions I was getting around all the other personal finance topics, ones that, honestly, I wasn't necessarily an expert on. And so this book was really exciting for me, and I got to go into more of a journalist writing approach where I interviewed 35 experts and learned a ton about these topics and 
it was important to me too to interview diverse experts. That's different for you, reporting, right? I mean, you've been writing, you've been coaching, but I got to say, reporting is my favorite part of my job still to this day. I do a lot of different things, but I love talking to smart people and learning what they think on a variety of topics. So I get why this has you all jazzed. What is a financial adult? Yes. So we might think someone who's a financial adult knows everything or never makes mistakes. And that's definitely not the case. It's not as daunting as it sounds. A financial adult is someone who takes small, consistent steps And those steps add up to big results. So that's a lot less daunting. Financial adults also understand what's happening with their money. And this sounds (laughs) simple, but it's actually really profound. What's happening with our money means what's coming in, what's going out, what's going to our different goals, whether that's saving, investing, giving. So really being clear where our money is and where it's going. They also feel confident in their plans. So knowing that the things that we want to have, our goals, we are on our way to achieve them and really understanding the timeline and feeling confident that we can make that happen. So that's a big one. And then understanding this critical context of equity and personal finance. So if we have financial privilege, we can use that to help close the gender and racial wealth gaps. And also understanding if we may be starting at a disadvantage due to historic and systemic oppression. You've got an entire chapter in the book on equity, and it talks about the history of this oppression for women and for people of color. You put this chapter on equity on a par with all of these other financial topics. Why did you choose to approach it that way? Yes, I think it's just such an important part of the conversation. My own journey can be helpful, but it's so much more helpful to hear from people who may be experiencing things differently than me. And when I dug into all these different areas of personal finance, equity and gender and racial wealth gaps and pay gaps and debt gaps and investing gaps and credit score gaps, they showed up in every area. And so I think if we don't talk about it, there's this assumption that everyone is starting from the same place and experiencing money in the same way, and it really couldn't be further from the truth. From those 35 experts, what was the best advice that you received when it came to closing some of those gaps, or if not closing them entirely, then starting to shrink them? So one of the women I interviewed for the book is Linda Scott. She's a professor emeritus at the University of Oxford, and she wrote the book, The Double X Economy, where she coined that phrase to address the systemic exclusion of women from the financial order all over the world. And she went as far as to say that gender inequality causes poverty and hunger and war actually attributed to this inequality all types of terrible things. And some of the advice that, or some of the fixes that could happen on a larger scale to close these gaps, a few of them, canceling student loan debt, something she said is a women's issue and actually even more of an issue for women of color, mandating paid leave. And she said actually the most transformative change, but it's actually, it's a big infrastructure change, but it would easily pay for itself is to build a system of universal, affordable, high quality childcare. 100%. 
A hundred percent. I think affordable childcare is the game changer. It's been the game changer for a very, very long time. On a smaller level, I love these fixes, right? I'd love to see student loan debt, if not canceled out and out. I'd love to see some of it canceled. But I'm wondering on a more personal level, what can our listeners do in order to try to close some of these gaps or to be the kind of ally that helps close some of these gaps? Yes. Every time we spend, we have the opportunity to vote for the things that we want to see more of in the world, whether that's investing our money in funds that support more women on boards or more diversity or buying things from companies that are women-owned or people of color-owned. So really being strategic and intentional about where we're giving our money and where we're spending our money is one way to do it. I think also something that came up over and over again in my interviews for the book and just with people I've worked with over the years is that there's usually someone in our lives that gave us a nudge. That could be our coworker who sits next to us and says, hey, are you investing in your 401k or do you are you maximizing your match? Or someone who talks about what they earn or shares how they're investing and those people for us are the ones who can really get us started and level us up. And so I think focusing on our own financial education so that we can be that person for other people is a really tremendous way to start helping close the gap on a smaller level. I think you're totally right about that. And sometimes I think we hold ourselves back from being that sharer of financial information because we don't feel like we have enough of the answers. We don't feel like we have all of the answers, but we can do it in a micro way. You know, sometimes I feel like I've learned something just so I could help my kids with it. I'm thinking back to homework, right? When they were doing math homework and it wasn't the way that I had done math when I was in high school because, you know, there was the new math and all of that. And and I had to learn, like, how they were supposed to solve the algebra problems in order to help them solve the algebra problems, but then I could help teach them that, right? And that kind of immediate passing along of whatever it is you've learned to a colleague, whether it's like, hey, I just learned that my health savings account can be used for X, Y, and Z. Did you know this, right? You just learned it, you share it. That's how this stuff perpetuates. I know the Fiscal Femme has grown since you and I have talked, right? You're a large community these days. What are you hearing from that community as you head into 2022? Yes. So something that also, it, it lends itself to the, the example you gave with algebra. I noticed in the parents that I spoke to, that's one of the reasons that parents don't talk to their kids about money. And this is showing up not only from parents in the community, but also individuals who felt like their parents didn't talk to them about money. And it's not because they are trying to withhold information or don't think it's important. They feel like they don't know enough to be talking to their kids or they're making so many mistakes or feel like they're making so many mistakes, who am I to teach them about money? It's been really interesting. There's a lot of focus in the community on intergenerational conversations, whether that's educating children and talking to them about money and being honest about the mistakes we've made, I think can really open very meaningful and rich conversations. And then also talking to 
parents, because there's a lot of concern in my community about taking care of parents and the financials of that and what that will look like and being unclear what parents have planned for. So I think I've seen a lot of fostering of these more difficult conversations. Yeah, I think you're right. I've been hearing a lot more about long-term care in particular over the past couple of months. It feels like I'm reporting a story about it for my column in AARP. So maybe it's just my microcosm of one, but I do feel like it's with COVID in particular and with the fact that there's been so much illness, I feel like people are thinking more about this. Are you hearing from your community about the great resignation? Are they seeing higher salaries? Are they seeing greater workplace flexibility? What are they experiencing at work? In the community, I'm seeing a few different things. One is that parents are really struggling right now. And some companies are stepping up and offering things to try to support parents navigating childcare difficulties, illness, leave, all of these things. And then there's others that are, you know, there's a lot of activity of people getting new jobs, switching jobs, getting more pay. And I think to your question earlier on things we can do to help close the gap, negotiating for ourselves and increasing what we earn is a great way to take another step. And also that's a way for us to be again, help advise, share our experience with others. And something that has helped me, because even though I, <laughs> I talk about this all the time and help other people negotiate, it's easier said than done when it's for yourself. And so I always think about when I'm negotiating, that I'm negotiating for women everywhere, not only making it more normalized and typical that women can negotiate and want to be paid more and what they deserve, but also being able to share my experience later. So I have seen a lot of job switching, increasing in pay, interviewing happening, and then also just like the struggles of navigating a pandemic with people who might need us, whether that's a family member or a parent, ourselves not feeling well and how to work. And with COVID, I think a lot of people are ill during a certain period of time and then are still not feeling well even once they're quote unquote better and how to navigate that in the workplace is something else I've been seeing. We've talked a lot in our past couple of shows about negotiating for more salary and whether you should quit your job and if you should quit your job, how to quit your job. We had a great discussion with Catherine Minshew about the right way to resign. When it comes to dealing with the other things that you need, particularly as a mom, dealing with your kids, what have you been able to ask for? What have the members of your community been able to ask for? How are they asking and how are they succeeding? I interviewed someone for the book. Her name is Lauren Smith Brody, and she wrote the book, The Fifth Trimester, about going back to work after you have a baby and that transition. And she has really become a gender equity advocate and a parent advocate in the workplace. And the conversation we had was really around understanding that when we ask for something, whether that's more flexible hours or she's a big proponent of if you do pare down your time, making it more efficient time and not actually reducing your pay because we tend to go part-time and still work just as hard. And now we're working hard for maybe no benefits and less pay. But to view that negotiation as changing company culture for 
other people who may need that flexibility. So instead of thinking it's just about the flexibility that I need right now, thinking that this is going to help people who might want flexibility for other personal reasons, whether that is even for just having a more balanced life or caring for someone else. There's just so many reasons that people with disabilities, there's many reasons that flexibility is important. And creating an open dialogue and being able to show how the company will actually benefit and your performance will improve when this flexibility is built in. I so agree with that. I'm a Lauren Smith Brody fan. And I firmly believe that when you bring additional responsibilities into your life, generally a child, you just become a lot more efficient. You know, you're better at handling the number of hours you have in your day. And for that reason, taking a pay cut is almost always a mistake, right? I mean, yes, if you want to go to part-time, if you want to go to half-time, okay, I understand that. But if you are taking some flexibility, if you are asking for flexibility, asking to be able to work in a different spot, as so many of us have proven that we can do during the pandemic, do not offer to cut your salary. It's a move that's going to backfire. It's a move that's going to put you back years, if not decades, once those kids are into school and you're able to be more on site in the office, if that's something that we choose to do in the future. And I think we are in a whole new world when it comes to all of those things. I want to actually dive into some more direct advice about the different parts of your book, advice that you got from those 35 experts that you interviewed about the basic adult functions of personal finance. But before we do that, let me remind everyone Her Money is sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. I hope that you'll join me and award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien for a brand new show called Everyday Wealth. It's presented by Edelman Financial Engines. And tune in because we're exploring how your financial decisions can shape your life and why wealth is about more than just money. We're sitting down with experienced wealth planners and financial professionals who are joining us to talk about tax-efficient investing and planning for the next generation and retirement and so much more. It's your money. Nobody cares about it as much as you do, so make the most of it. New episodes premiere each weekend and are available on major podcast platforms. Visit everydaywealth.com slash hermoney to learn more and to subscribe. I am talking with Ashley Feinstein-Gerstley. She is the author of Financial Adulting. Ashley, I want to get really tactical, as I said, with advice now, looking at the major takeaways from your book. So let's dive into some action steps for each category. Okay, so saving and budgeting, and I really think that we budget in order to save more. What are your best tips? What are the best tips that I've never heard before? I think, so budgets definitely need a big rebrand. That's something we talked about a bit in our last conversation, that we view them as this thing we don't want to do, and they're going to limit our fun and hold us back. But they're really such a gift to ourselves because they give us clarity of where our money is going. We can build and fund things potentially without the guilt. So where I go back to is financial adults are so clear on 
where their money is going. And it is not a small task, but actually looking at what you're spending. When I think about the budgeting equation, it is money in, the money that's actually hitting our bank account, which is different, sadly, than our salaries, then minus where our money is going to our expenses and to our goals. And if that equation is greater than zero, then our budget is working. It's workable. We have enough income to cover our expenses and our goals. And if it's negative, which if it is, you are definitely in the majority, that is the case for many of us, that means we need to rework some things and look at the expenses, moving around the different parts to make it work. Are the different parts that you've been moving around most as you coach Are they different now than they were a couple of years ago? Have they changed during the pandemic? Are we spending in different ways? It's a great question. Definitely the spending has changed. I think the people have gotten very focused on building that rainy day cushion, that first savings priority, because they've seen what can happen. And I think the millennial generation, you know, we many of us started our jobs in the Great Recession, maybe lost our jobs, then you know, now we're in the pandemic, things are getting more expensive, all different things are happening. But I think it's very clear that security is really important to people right now. And for many, that's building up that rainy day fund. Maybe it wasn't as big as they they thought it was big enough, but then something happened and now they realize they want it to be bigger or it's paying down debt that happened during a transition. But I think the goals piece of it has definitely come into focus and getting clearer on what expenses are not actually worth it to people, I think has also shifted. When we were in more quarantine mode, a lot of our expenses went away. People ended up spending more than they expected during that time, just maybe refitting a home office, getting exercise equipment at home, whatever it was. But then as we're transitioning more into going back to the office or doing more of our regular activities, people are feeling maybe clearer on how they want the stage to look different than it was pre-pandemic. When it comes to our philanthropy, when it comes to giving back, what was the best advice you received there? I interviewed Tanya Hester. She wrote the book Wallet Activism. And I asked all these questions about how do I know if an organization is using their money wisely and doing good in the world? And she said, you know what? These companies, these nonprofits are under budgeted, they're doing so much with a little amount of money that instead of spending so much time worrying about who we're giving to, to just do it. Think of something that's important to you, find an organization and just start. And another question I had, is it better to do large amounts with one company or small amounts with many? Because I've noticed that more and more I'm getting requests from friends. I'm running this race. I'm working with this organization. Is it better to say no to those and just do a big chunk? And she said, you know what? Think about what feels the best to you. Like, do you want to write a big check once a year? Are you happy giving? So I think less analyzing what we're doing as far as giving and just trying to do more of it and build in more of it. And something I experienced with giving is that it's a lot like saving. If we wait to see that there's money left over to give, we're really, there's not going to be. And so to build it in, like we build in other expenses makes it so we're prioritizing and giving just like we pay ourselves first to give to organizations that are important to us first. 
There is a big push, I'm sure you've noticed, from charitable organizations everywhere to give on a monthly basis, right? You watch TV and there are commercials from everybody from St. Jude to the ASPCA to contribute on a regular basis. And, you know, of course, the charities do it because it's good for them. It's good for them to know that they've got this consistent stream of income that's not just going to hit them at the holidays, but that they can count on year round to pay for their expenses and so that they can better budget. But I think what gets lost is that it's actually better for us as well if we want to be regular supporters of particular organizations. You don't have to just write those checks at the holidays. It's okay to make room for it as we go. Our audience is always hungry for great tips about investing. You and I are having this conversation in mid-January. The markets have been very, very rocky, which I hope is not putting anybody back on their skis. I hope that everybody's going to you know, continue to stick with the plan. What did you hear that opened your eyes? The advice was invest for the long term, invest in low fee funds, invest in broadly diversified indexes. So that was the resounding message over and over. And something that I've heard from my community, especially during these rocky times, is there's a lot of headlines that can seem really scary. And there can be stories of a lot of loss. And there's also, I think there's just the stories on either end get a lot of airtime. So the overnight NFT millionaire or the person who lost it all. And what I think the experts I interviewed encouraged and what I also encourage is to focus on kind of the less sexy but more replicable story of investing over time. And as hard as it is, you know, I think when you hear I even get FOMO when I see someone say, I invested in this and now I have all this money. But to remember that people talk about their wins so much more frequently than their losses and to invest in the market regularly, low fee funds is overwhelmingly what I heard from experts for the book. The one-liner that I've been repeating in my mind over the past year actually comes from a, a woman named Jamie Kramer who didn't make it up, but she likes to say this. She, like you and like me, is an alum of the University of Pennsylvania, and she and I were on a panel together for a committee that we're both on, and she said, it's not about timing the market. It's about time in the market. You just have to be in all the time. And when I get a little nervous, I hear Jamie's voice in my head saying, it's time in the market. I like that. We can hold on to that. Are there other sections of the book where you heard things that really resonated? I mean, if you had to pick a top three pieces of advice for us to take away today, what would they be no matter what section they came from? I would definitely say the last chapter is called Become Your Own Money Coach. And it's all around, so now we know a lot about these different areas. We know what we want to be doing, but how do we keep up this momentum? It's not just about creating the plan. It's about maintaining the plan and checking in on it and learning from it. So I think keeping our motivation up, whether that's finding community or people we can follow and ask questions to, or just a money friend, some way to keep us engaged and accountable in the conversation around our money, I think is really, really important. I also think setting aside time, this is something that I'm a huge fan of. And 
we're busy, we have a lot going on. And if we don't schedule time to deal with our money, it's not going to happen. And it most likely will just hang over our heads and stress us out. So every single month, and some people like to do this more frequently, I have a money party where I have two hours carved out to sit down and look at what I spent, how I'm moving towards my goals. Throughout the month, random financial things come up and I tackle them during that time. Also, there's a lot in the book about partners and money and there's sections, little call-outs called For the Love of Money. And a money party is a great time, especially if money is something that's stressful in your relationship, to talk about things that come up during that time. So it's not like we're always having little conversations around money that can be stressful, but we're almost compartmentalizing it to this money party time and really setting the stage for a open, non-judgmental caring conversation around money. Who do you invite to your money party? Is it just you and your spouse? Is it a party of one? Is it who comes to, it doesn't sound like a party to me. It sounds like something. I mean, I do this, right? I do this. My husband and I, we carve out time. We talk about it. We schedule it because you're right. If you don't schedule it, it does not happen. Would I call it a party? I don't think I'm popping bottles. (laughs) Well, that's funny because I do call it a party and You can have your favorite beverage during it, but I do recommend drinking more of it towards the end or the party gets very unproductive. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, there are more fun parties to attend, but it's kind of like how I call the budget the happiness allocation. It's reframing, using different language so that we look forward to it more. And you can make it fun in that I like to get cozy. Someone in one of my workshops had the idea that they'd only have ice cream during their money parties and that's their favorite food. And you don't have to be that drastic and only have ice cream that one time of month, but things that could make it, you know, I have a money party playlist that I play, all these songs that pump me up about money. You can reward yourself after. So think of something fun that you can do to say, good job, you had your money party. And you can, so who can be invited? It can be just you. It could be you and your partner. You can bring in the kids as they get older and are are ready for those conversations. You can do it with friends and, you know, you can be quiet or have some prompts during and then all go out after. So there's ways to make it as big or as small. I used to run them live with groups and then we also did them digitally. And there's something about other people doing it at the same time that makes it a little bit more fun, but it also takes more coordination. The book is Financial Adulting. Ashley Feinstein Gersley, thank you so much for coming to our money party. Thank you so much for having me. It felt like a party. It did. It's always a party when you're here. We appreciate it. And of course, Her Money's Catherine Tuggle will join me for Mailbag in just a moment. But let me just take a second to point out that Her Money is supported by BCU, one of the nation's fastest growing credit unions. BCU helps its members make smart financial decisions by offering the products, services, and caring support they need for whatever stage of life they're in. Find out if you're eligible by visiting www.bcu.org. Hey, Catherine. Hey, Jean. How are you today? I am fine. I'm fully caffeinated, so I'm feeling good. Love that. And I went to the gym. Are you a caffeine before the gym person, or is that your reward when you're done? I'm a both person. Okay. And in fact, (laughs) I am a both person. I, I don't have a ton of coffee before I exercise because then... And I feel like we're all friends in her money land, but then I have to pee. 
And I don't want to stop in the middle or find myself. I mean, it's okay if I'm in a gym and there's a bathroom, but if I'm not in a gym and I'm outside running, like the places that they will let you stop in and use their bathroom are fewer and further between than they used to be. So I try to minimize the amount that I have before, but I do need a little bit to get myself going. And it's funny that you mentioned that because I did a... Peloton workout over the weekend with this instructor named Jen Sherman, who I love because she just has the best music. And she was saying that she doesn't have caffeine before she teaches her classes, the early morning ones. And I was just like, oh my God, how do you do that? You know, she's Does she teaching. have it at all? Or is she like a green juice person? She has it when she's off. That's her reward for getting off the bike. And she made that point, but I was just surprised. Wow. God love the people who can be that energetic without any substance. I know, right? I remember when I was pregnant for the first time, going to my doctor like fairly early, was definitely fairly early in my pregnancy and saying, I'm just dying. I am dying without my cup of coffee. And she was like, no, you can have one. And I was, you know, I I had read all the books that said, oh, no, you can't have this. So I was not having it. And I was so relieved. And I, you know, I had one, not the three that I typically have now, but I had one. My other hack is that in the house, we make half-calf so that I can just drink more of it, right? It's just, it's just my way to keep a warm beverage in my hand for most of the morning. Yeah. My parents do decaf and- Mm -hmm. I went to visit them like a few months ago and they had not informed me of this fact. And I was just like (laughs) dragging and I had a headache and I was like, oh my God, I'm so miserable. And they were like, oh, did you try our decaf? And I was like, ah, I feel like that's the kind of thing that should be advertised. Yeah. This (laughs) coffee is decaf. Yeah, true. Exactly. All right. I know we've got some questions. Let's pick them up. Our first note today comes to us from Nicole. She writes, Hello. You briefly discussed it in a recent episode, but I would love a full episode dedicated to ESPPs. My company has offered it for years and I've taken part, but never know how much to invest, when to diversify, what to do when your company stock hasn't been doing well. I have so many questions and I would love any additional knowledge you could share. Thank you. Wow. A whole episode dedicated to ESPPs. Well, let's actually spend a few minutes on the topic and we'll see about a full episode or maybe a dedicated mailbag about this in the future. ESPPs for people who are not in the know are employee stock purchase plans. And it's basically just a way to buy stock in your publicly traded company at a discount. These plans let you buy this company stock at a discount of up to 15% of the fair market price. And that up to 15% just depends on your particular plan. But generally the way they work is that you contribute money to this employee stock purchase plan directly from your paycheck, kind of like you do into a 401k, but on an after-tax basis. Some companies may also allow you to make lump sum contributions and These contributions build up in an escrow account for a set period. Could be as little as a month, but typically it's six months or a year. And then your employer uses the money to buy shares of the company on your behalf, which sounds like a great deal, right? You're buying at a 
discount of 15%. You can go ahead and you can sell it right away and you can make some money, but there are tax implications to understand. Most ESPPs are qualified. And what that means is that you don't have to pay any income taxes on that per share discount when you buy the shares, but when you sell the shares, the discount is considered additional compensation and it's taxed as ordinary income. Any remaining gains that you have are taxed differently depending on how long you actually hold on to those shares. So if you sell your shares immediately, and you should know that not all plans allow this, your profit will come from the discounted purchase price, but your gains will be considered short-term gains and you'll pay regular income tax on those gains. If you hold on for at least two years from the day that you were granted the offer to buy those shares and one year from the date that you purchased them, then they're considered long-term holdings and they're taxed at the lower long-term capital gains rate, which is 15% for most people. So finally, the question is, do you do this? Do you participate if you're offered this? And I think it's really important to look how this fits into both your financial plan and your overall goals. For example, even though that 15% discount sounds like a great immediate return, you have to think about, A, can you sell those shares right away? Because if the stock isn't doing particularly well, it is possible to lose money on these things. You also have to think about the benefit of taking the money and using it for other purposes. So for example, the benefit of financially capturing matching dollars in a 401k likely provides you with a greater return. So you're going to want to do that first. Also, other things to think about, would you buy this stock? If you didn't work for the company, again, that's a consideration when it comes to whether you want to hold on to it, whether you want to sell it as soon as you can. These are complicated things. So one last piece of advice from me is that if you have a financial advisor, this is definitely something that you want to think about talking about when you put together your plan. So I hope that's good enough to start with and we'll consider future episodes as we look at these kind of plans overall. Thanks, Jean. Do you think that this is the kind of thing that every employee should take advantage of if it's offered? Generally, I think it's a really good thing to take advantage of, particularly if you can sell it as soon as you want to sell it, because then you can flip it, right? And you can capture some gain. You might have to pay taxes on that gain, but you're making money. And in that case, I would say, yeah, go ahead and do it. If you have to hold on for a while, then you have to really look at the fortunes of your company and think about, all right, is this going to go down in the short term between now and when I am able to sell it? So I wouldn't say a blanket yes, but I would say it's a blanket yes as far as something people should consider. Gotcha. Amazing. Thanks. Our last note comes to us from Melissa. She writes, hi, Jean. My parents divorced late in life, and one of them is now remarried. As I'm thinking about the future of my own family, it occurred to me that when my partner or I pass away, the other may want to get remarried. I know I'm thinking far into the future, but I'm concerned about the division of assets and the estate if one of us chooses to get remarried after the other spouse is gone. 
After we're both gone, it's my opinion that any of the wealth accumulated during our marriage should, upon the second spouse's death, go directly to our four children, not to a new spouse or their previous family. My husband and I had a conversation about it, and he's fairly certain that he would want to get remarried after I'm gone. Are there ways to set up our estate now so that when this happens, it's already in place and will be a seamless process? Thanks for your help with this tricky subject. Hey, Alyssa, this is such a good question. It's a really good question for people who are married the first time and are thinking about it just like you. It's a really good question for people like me. My husband and I are on our second marriage, and we both brought kids and assets into the marriage. So we've had a lot of conversations about what happens to his money and my money and the money that we've commingled to do things like buy our apartment after one or both of us pass away. The answer to your question is trusts. And for that, you need to see an estate planning attorney. Estate planning attorneys can set up trusts so that the money that you and your spouse or the wealth that you and your spouse have created together can be basically preserved or not necessarily put aside because your spouse is going to need something to live on or you're going to need something to live on if your spouse dies before you do, but sort of corralled off so that although you may be able to live off the income or live off the income and some of the principal if you need it, the wealth in there will not go to any subsequent spouse. Sit down with an estate planning attorney and just describe to that attorney exactly what you described to me. It's our job when we sit down with an estate planning attorney to talk in English, to talk just in plain spoken language about our goals. I want to make sure my kids get my money after I'm gone. I don't want that money to go to a future family that my spouse might have. You say that they put it down in legalese and then you sign it And that's sort of how it works. It costs generally a couple thousand dollars to put in place a trust like this. If you find an estate planning attorney who's more reasonable than that, great. But I would plan on spending that amount of money. But I think the exercise is really, really important. And you should do it sooner rather than later. I agree completely. My husband's family has a trust. My family has a trust. And I think when we got those in place, it was just such peace of mind for everyone involved. Yeah, I just redid my state plan the last couple of months because I moved to a new state. It had been a while since I had taken a look at these things. It had actually been a good, you're supposed to take a look every three years. For me, it had been more than that. It probably had been about four or five I made some changes. It wasn't tough. I spent about an hour on the phone with the lawyer myself. Then I spent another hour on the phone with Elliot because we have slightly different visions of these things. And it's her job to make sure that both of our visions can meld in these legal documents. She sent some paperwork over and we're signing. I mean, it really was not that complicated. And so 
when I hear about people who don't have wills or hear about people who are dragging their feet on these things, and then you hear terrible stories about people losing spouses in tragedies or earlier than anticipated, you just think, why did you wait? Yeah, it's so true. Thank you for the great advice, Jean. Thanks, Catherine. And in today's Thrive, there are many meaningful ways to build a true connection with your partner. Some of them are romantic and fun. Others are more practical and necessary. One of those necessary tasks, and we were talking about this with Ashley earlier, is to create financial goals as a couple to prepare for the future that you'll have together. At hermoney.com, we break down some of the financial goals that you might want to reach together this year. Here are just a couple of them. First, communicate your goals and prioritize them. This may be tricky after years if you've been flying solo with your money, but it's important to remember that being in a relationship doesn't mean ditching your personal goals. Far from it. The goal is just to be on the same page as your partner about those bigger line items. And one of the tangible ways to approach this is for both of you to make individual lists of all the goals you have, short-term and long-term, and then just share those lists. Try to split your individual goals into two categories, the must-haves and the nice-to-haves. The must-haves are essential, but those nice-to-have ones are the things that you might be willing to compromise on. And once you've got your lists on paper and you've shared them, you can start to discuss back and forth what matters most to you as individuals and then also as couples. Next, schedule progress check-ins, or as Ashley called them, money parties. No matter whether you're training for a marathon or trying to save an extra couple hundred dollars a month, you can't measure your success unless you check your progress. As you start to pinpoint your financial aspirations for the year ahead, make sure to keep up with the steps you take along the way. So set up a recurring calendar invite that makes you sure to remember to check in. And finally, set some guidelines for spending. Your partner may be more liberal with spending. You may tend to squirrel away more for a rainy day, or maybe it's the reverse. Though you should both still preserve some financial autonomy, some financial independence, it is important to align on what's appropriate when you have common money interests. And so to avoid friction, to make progress toward those goals, just set some basic rules regarding spending. It may be as simple as a line in the sand when it comes to spending a certain amount of your household money, the money that you've shared, the money that you've merged, becomes something that you have to talk about. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Ashley Feinstein-Gersley for walking us through the steps to becoming more conscious and more confident with our money each and every day. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd also like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and VCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon.